The weak link in this is truly people. People are in charge of fiat money and all of their strengths and weaknesses are reflected in it. The primary problem comes down to that people have natural weaknesses. Anyone given the ability to create money is eventually going to abuse it, whether intentionally or for the belief that this is what's best for the country, monetary tools are going to be abused. Fiat money is manipulated for good or bad, but either way, it's still manipulated. And even gold, as we've talked about in the last couple episodes, once it's centralized, these gold receipts, they can also be manipulated. The inherent weakness is that people can manipulate and that manipulation can cause catastrophe. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Ladies and gents, we are delighted that you've taken the time to drop by the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. In this episode, we continue our Bitcoin Basics series. This is episode number three in the series, where we hone in on what constitutes good money and why Bitcoin has characteristics and attributes that make it a marvelous tool for moving value in the digital age. If you missed the first couple episodes of this series or want to stay clued in on the entire series, all Bitcoin Basics episodes are linked on our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io slash bitcoinbasics. Throughout the entire series, we're joined by Daz and Seb from Looking Glass Education. As I'm sure all of you agree, these two gents are full of wonderful insight. Check out their work at lookingglasseducation.com, and you can see more of Seb Bunny's work at sebbunny.com. In this specific episode, we talk about a number of Bitcoin's remarkable characteristics, of which there are many. One of the vital elements of Bitcoin's magnificence and usefulness is its censorship resistance and bearer nature, its ability to be self-custodied. The products that we trust to hold our own private keys are made by the industry leader in Bitcoin security, CoinKite. CoinKite has the entire landscape of self-custody covered. A SATS card is so simple you can load Bitcoin on it and hand it to your grandmother. The tap signer by CoinKite in conjunction with a wallet like Nunchuck is secure, easy to use, and still boomer friendly. The cold card wallet is usable for Bitcoin beginners all the way up to the most advanced of users. And coming soon, CoinKite has announced the cold card Q1, which can currently be reserved. This takes even the features and design of the cold card Mark IV to the next level. The point I'm making here is that when it comes to Bitcoin custody and security, CoinKite has something for everyone. There is no excuse. Start learning how to take possession of your Bitcoin. Get 5% off the cold card by using promo code BCB. And you can support our show by purchasing all CoinKite products at our affiliate link provided down in the show notes. If you have not gotten your tickets to the Bitcoin 2023 conference, well, what the flip are you doing? Tickets will continue to go up from now until the conference starting on May 18th. You can get 10% off with discount code BCB. That's BCB. The speaker lineup at this event is incredible as usual. But beyond the robust education opportunities, these few days in Miami Beach are just an outright blast. Come on down and join the party with a plethora of passionate Bitcoiners. Again, that's code BCB for 10% off tickets, which you can get at b.tc slash conference. All right, folks, sit back, relax, and enjoy episode three of Bitcoin Basics.
All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Daz, Seb, welcome back. We missed you boys. We've been out of town for the last week and uh, we missed doing this, honestly. Happy to be back, and we're especially happy to be joined by the two of you. Thanks, boys. Good to see you. Good to be uh, back as well. Yeah, it's been a been a long couple of weeks, but um, keen to jump in, talk some more shit today. <laughs> Heck yeah, yeah. We're rested, recuperated. Uh, we were out in Big Sky, Montana, us and and seven other dudes we work with. And I mean, speaking of hogs, Josh, by day three, it smelled like a neglected petting zoo on the first floor of that that Airbnb. <laughs> My God. I mean, we basically just dieted on frozen pizza, chicken. Like, we cook high-end meals at work. Super high-end shit. Healthy. We let our hair down on this trip. I mean, like I said, frozen pizza, chicken wings, jalapeno poppers, and we paid the freaking price yeah. because, my God, were there some gastrointestinal issues. We we actually spent, I think it was, what is it, $800 at Costco to, to <laughs> load this place up with food, and it was gone on the first night like this entire like truckload of food that we bought was just destroyed oh man i almost i was gagging on the first floor josh i swear to goodness i walked past one of the bathrooms and i outright started to gag it was that <laughs> disgusting i don't know whose fault it was could have been you could have been someone else I'm, I'm not taking claim on that but i'm also not denying it Seb, we hear uh the snow is not great in your neck of the woods fill us nope. in what's the deal I am definitely jealous of you guys' trip. Yeah, definitely jealous. We have been, yeah, there's something called a pineapple express where basically you just have like a ton of good snow and you're like, ah, this is going to be phenomenal. And then the temperatures just shoot up and cook everything. And then you just basically just have a big, heavy, wet, like slab of cement. And so that's just what's happening yeah. here. And right now it's just, it's raining pretty heavy outside. And uh, hopefully it turns, the temperatures drop and we get a little bit of snow again. But yeah, yeah. got to join you guys next time. And we've got to get Daz out because Daz has only seen snow once in his life. Oh my gosh. I knew enough not to eat the yellow stuff. It's <laughs> the lemon stuff. It's the good stuff. <laughs> I hate to make you jealous, Seb. The first the first day we hit the slopes, we had like 10 inches of fresh powder. It was like nothing I've ever seen. I mean, we see a lot of snow in the Midwest, but these mountains, obviously, and that powder were incredible. It was it was a hell of a day. Exhausting when you're hacks like us, too. Absolutely yeah. exhausting. When you fall over and then you lose a ski and then you got to try and find the ski again. Yeah. Except the rest of these guys are losers on this trip. They're all snowboarders, so and they don't, you know. Uh, yeah, Dan was the only weirdo on two, <laughs> on two pieces of plywood out there. Two snowboards. I don't know what he's yeah. thinking. Yeah, he had two <laughs> snowboards on for some reason. I don't really understand that, but whatever. I mean, whatever floats your boat, you know. It's swinging back. It's swinging back. More and more of the kids these days are asking to uh, jump on the skis and the snowboard. So, yeah, it's coming back. So in Australia, we're, um, we have to settle for, well, most of us need to have to settle for our wakeboarding. So, um, on the, on the lake. So that's as close as we sort of get. And I'm a, I'm a board maximalist. I'm not a ski maximalist. So there you go. Yeah. Dude, wakeboarding kills skiing any day. Wakeboarding yeah. is a hell of a good time. Yeah. I get ganged up on, on these trips, Seb. I am a lone wolf, man. I need you to come on one of these cause it is open season on me with the skis all week. I know that, um, what is it, April 1st, I think the U.S. is opening its borders back up to Canada. So we can definitely, we should organize a ski trip. That would be freaking awesome. 
Seb will take somewhere that will end our life, Josh. I guarantee you uh, that. In what you do, Seb, and I don't think I'm up to. Uh, I don't. I want to come back to my family afterwards. I don't want to risk yeah. it that much. Seb will go. Oh, we'll just go on a small hike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> we went into the resort with uh, just a ski resort, like not touring or anything, with uh, Greg Foss. And we ended up getting cliffed out and Greg finds himself on this like 40, 50 foot cliff. And I could have sworn he was about to have a heart attack. So <laughs> that, that was a close call. Well, so how did he get down? He ended up, it was like kind of a sheet ice day. And he's just like perched on his two ski edges on the top of this like 40 foot cliff. And his buddy and I are flexible enough to kind of like get one ski, turn it around and then turn the other one around and then sk- skate out. But Greg is not the most flexible man in the world with his like best job for 35 years. So he had to back out there, slowly take off his skis. And he, he was pretty scared. He, there's a few podcasts I think he's mentioned it. Yeah, see, I pictured Foss as a snowboarder. I don't know why. I just pictured Foss just tearing it up at the park on a snowboard. But I guess I uh, had it all wrong. He trades bonds as well, which are not that cool. So I, I, I understand why. <laughs> yeah. We're pumped to get into the topic. The, the goal here is to discuss the characteristics of great money, and there's so much to explore here. I'm excited to see where each of you take it, because we could take it in a lot of directions. We'll stick with the typical plan of who knows where the conversation goes. We'll hop from guy to guy. I thought I would kind of kick us off with a little bit of just an intro thought, setting the parameters for the conversation, laying out the canvas um, such that you guys can grab the paintbrush and the paint. When we're talking about the characteristics of great money, we got to answer why do the characteristics of money matter in the first place? What makes for a great form of money? In our first couple episodes, we covered a lot of misconceptions, one being that you know money is a government creation. We explored the fact that it's an emergent phenomena wherever trade proliferates. We've established that money is so deeply ingrained in how we do things that we're, we're sort of inoculated to its usefulness. We don't even know why it's so important. It's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe. We've established that tools and technologies spread because they are useful, right? And so when we're talking about what makes great money, we need to define purpose. We need to define its usefulness. What makes a great money? To what end is it great? Right. And, and there's a lot of functions of money, transferring value across time and space, facilitating trade, improving communication in a marketplace, broadening efficiencies in an economic system. So today, I think the goal for the four of us is to establish what characteristics or attributes best fulfill these purposes of money that I just mentioned. What is going to prove to be the most useful in the digital age, given today's economic environment? History demonstrates that our species tends to converge upon the best tool for whatever purpose is intended. I think the four of us agree Bitcoin has some characteristics that make it potentially the best system in existence when it comes to executing the movement of value. Hopefully we can do our best audience to to enumerate why Bitcoin is so marvelously and unstoppably useful. Any any thoughts here? intro comments from the three of you um i think a good place to start while we're on this trend here is to talk a little bit about bad money and a couple of examples about what made money bad Mm. how it got to be that way and this will kind of give us something to contrast what good money is off of so 
Um, the book, uh, When Money Dies, something I've been reading over the last couple of weeks. And I've read it in the past, but it's a good refresher to come back to. I think, Daz, you mentioned that. So what that talks about primarily is the Weimar hyperinflation. It talks about the, I didn't even know that the Austrians had inflation at that time too, hyperinflation. But it primarily talks about Germany. And what precipitated that was World War I was extremely expensive. It was just a horrible thing, much more than anyone anticipated at the time. And Germany funded the entire thing with deficit spending. And the, they anticipated that they would win the war. And afterwards, they would cause the allies to pay for all of their borrowing. Well, it didn't turn out like that. They ended up losing the war. And they had to pay not only their end of the war, but war reparations as, uh, as well. Their war reparations became due in 1921. And they weren't allowed to pay with marks because everyone understood they would be depreciating. So they had to go into the free market, use their marks to buy foreign currencies, printing a ton of money, ended up causing themselves to go through this massive hyperinflation. Uh, to give you an idea of how bad it was, in 1922, a loaf of bread costed 160 marks. At the end of 1923, that loaf of bread costed 200 million marks. So, <laughs> I mean, immeasurable. Uh, and then there's Zimbabwe, which had hyperinflation multiple times, just about every decade. Very similar, except no war. They just deficit spended until they blew their currency up multiple times. And I actually have a uh, Zimbabwe $100 trillion bill on the wall behind me, which has, funny enough, gained value over the last 10 years, <laughs> uh, hilariously enough. But there's another point that I want to make with this. Everybody thinks that it's just the printing of money that causes hyperinflation. But it's also the velocity of money. So the printing causes people to realize, holy shit, this money is losing value quickly. I need to offload it as quickly as I can. That cycle causes the money to move faster and faster, having to get printed further and further. And this is the death spiral that we know as hyperinflation. So basically, that is how money dies. It's a death spiral. That book is phenomenal. I highly recommend everyone read it. It's a tough read. It's it's not a I wouldn't say it's an enjoyable read and it's a bit of a mind blowing read, but it is such a good uh, example of what happens when money dies. And if if you look at that and the events that occur and the and the sort of byproducts of that hyperinflationary event, there's a lot of parallels to currency and, and what it's doing at the moment, um, you know, with stock market behaviors and uh, the gold price and uh, Luke Groman's got mentioned this numerous times over the last couple of years. He's got this chart of the gold price and the volatility that happened through that Weimar Republic. So why gold is like a really good strong peg through the time, that volatility in the underlying unit of account, which was the 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 German mark, um, it, it's such a wild swing between overvaluation, undervaluation, uh, and then next minute it just shoots off up up to the up to the sky. And what like you, you just touched on this before, Josh, is when people start to lose faith in their currency, they will literally flee to anything that's not pegged down to the ground. You know, they will. Right. Um, in in that example, they're they're buying carpets, they're buying food they're buying stores they're buying um farm animals they're buying absolutely anything that they can get their hands on and that's why we see hyperinflation where the cost of goods starts to go through the roof because as soon as people were getting their paycheck they were rushing down to stock right. market to the butcher to anywhere that they could go just to offload it as soon as they could because when your currency is depreciating by such a large amount 
the cost of goods will change within an hour. Like the 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 you know nobody even put up price boards anymore because it was such a massive competition to offload your dollars into anything else that the price of goods just shoots through the roof. Now we're far f- at the moment from a hyperinflationary event where we're seeing that, yeah, uh, you know, in in the major developing cur- currencies anyway, like the U.S. dollar and the Australian dollar, we're not seeing hyperinflation, but we are very quickly approaching that that um that event and the major. Um, I guess uh, learning that comes out of that is this has happened every single time they lose a peck to the to the currency when they p- bring in the ability to print out of thin air without any accountability behind it. This has happened to every single fiat currency mm. in the history of the world because this right. is not a new phenomenon. It hasn't just happened since 1971. It's just the longest lasting that we that we've known. Uh, you know, throughout the last centuries, they'll abandon these pegs to uh, a backing of some sort to fund typically wars and then you're right it's the idea is we'll abandon the peg we'll try and win the war and then we'll pay it back at the end um and every single time they've done a fiat currency it has failed ultimately it has ended in failure so like it's a bit silly to assume that this time it's different right right no i think you made such a good point does and what's interesting is uh dan had mentioned at the start about how Many times throughout history, money is this naturally emergent structure that forms when trade happens. But the thing is, fiat is not actually naturally emergent. Most of the time, when people see naturally emergent monies, what end up happening is people are looking for things that provide value, and that usually comes about through scarcity. But when we look at fiat, fiat is a co-opting of the monetary system so that those in positions of power end up putting in legislation and regulation, which basically says this is now legal tender. No matter what it is that you want to use, you have to use this. And so as it is not naturally emergent, it doesn't necessarily have to provide value. And this is what we're seeing through the Weimar hyperinflation is what we're seeing in fiat currencies today is that they go against what people naturally want, which I think is really fascinating. Mm. Yeah, that is a great point that fiat is not naturally emergent or could be so argued. And I'll double back to a point we made in a previous episode because someone's wondering, well, well, why? What? Why is it then? Why is the U.S. dollar and all these other fiats the the numeraire that we use when it comes to value transfer? And it, and just to touch on it really briefly again, if you missed those episodes, the reason that I feel that's the case, and this has been highlighted by Jeff Booth and Lynn Alden most prominently, is that in the in the you know you'd say nineteenth, twentieth, twenty first century, information started to move faster than humans, right? And so we needed money to move at the speed of information, which was a centralizing force. These ledgers became centralized, digitized, such that the the information that is a money ledger could move at the speed of light, essentially, the speed of commerce. But that has shortcomings. It, it, it's now at the centralized behest of governing bodies, governments, corporations, what have you. It's really not until the advent of Bitcoin that we have decentralized, bearer, censorship-resistant form of money that people can actually possess themselves in the digital age that keeps up with the speed of commerce. That is a huge freaking deal. But the shortcomings of more traditional forms of money like gold is the reason why money became centralized and fiat, you could say, in the first place. Yeah. I I think the the other thing I was going to say to double back to your point, Josh, and your point, Daz, is... (laughs) Money is a tool, and every once in a while, these tools break, especially centralized 
money tools break. Every single one of them is broken in the past. And when money breaks, it's more than just the money. Human cooperation breaks down, trust breaks down, society breaks down. The implications of a broken language is significant. If people start babbling because they're having a stroke, a lot more is broken than just the words coming out of their mouth. There's a lot of wiring in their brain that's fucked up. And that's what happens when money breaks. No, I think you make such a good point. And what prevents society from being able to transition to an alternate system is the fact that we have legal tender laws. And so it's one of those things where if money is naturally emergent, then why do we need legal tender laws to say that you have to use this type of money? It's kind of contradictory. And so uh, what's really fascinating, I was mentioning to these guys uh, earlier, is there's a really famous law called Gresham's Law. And so this is basically, the, 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 it states that bad money drives out good. And the reason why that is the case is that people naturally want to hold on to the money that holds value and they want to give up the money that doesn't. And so in a society, let's say you have gold and then you also have fiat. Well, people are going to spend fiat because naturally they want to hold on to the gold because that's going to be increasing in purchasing power. So then people would argue that over time, the bad money actually pushes out the good money because the good money slowly stops circulating. But that only exists in a system when there is legal tender. Because when there is legal tender, you have to use the money or you can use the money that is specified by the government. In a free market, the opposite is true. And this is called Thiers law. And Thiers law states that good money actually pushes out bad. Because if a company can uh, basically request whatever money it, they desire for their goods, they're not going to want the bad money. They're only going to want the good money. And so actually under a free market system, we actually see money trending in a positive direction rather than the opposite, which is what we're seeing right now, where money is kind of becoming a poorer store of value. It is becoming uh, uh, arguably a poor medium exchange because we're being limited in our ability to spend it and so on. Right. Um, I want to also point out before we move on to anything else here that the weak link in this is truly people. People are in charge of fiat money and all of their strengths and weaknesses are reflected in it. So you, the primary problem comes down to that people have natural weaknesses. Anyone given the ability to create money is eventually going to abuse it, whether intentionally or for the belief that this is what's best for the country or whether through foolishness, malice, monetary tools are going to be abused. Uh, you could take, for example, our current predicament, which is politicians have an interest in bringing as much money to their constituencies as possible because it's in their interest to get reelected. But that's not what the long-term good of the country is. I mean, that might be the short-term good for their specific constituency, but it's really not necessarily a good thing in the long term. So as a general rule, I'm just saying fiat money is manipulated for good or bad, but either way, it's still manipulated. And even gold, as we've talked about in the last couple episodes, once it's centralized, these gold receipts, they can also be manipulated. So the inherent weakness is that people can manipulate these tools and that manipulation can cause catastrophe in the long run. I think um, just a really good point just to wrap all, wrap all of that up is the, the actual definition of that word fiat is by decree. So it's it's from the right. top-down approach. It's like you must use this if you want to participate in our society, you know. And, um, uh, you know, it's it's really easy to jump down these rabbit holes and, and start thinking of these evil centralized bodies and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, whether that's true or not, regardless, it, it, it exactly aligns to what you're saying there, Josh, is it's, an, it's incentives. So if... If you're 
um, incentivized by the way that the system works. Like Charlie Munger's recent comments is a classic example, and um, Greg Foss right. and Larry Lapard were just on Swan Signal, and I recommend everybody go and listen to that because it's hilarious. These these two older gentlemen, very wise, a lot of experience in in trading in fiat markets. Um, <laughs> they're actually both coming on together here in a couple weeks. Man, I love them, mate. They're just hilarious. Yeah. And uh, they're both teeing off on Charlie Munger. Like, why would you take technology advice from a 99-year-old guy whose whole wealth has been tied to this fiat monetary system? And, and this guy just act, outwardly praises, you know, the CCP and, and China with their way of banning Bitcoin insane, and so forth. And and it, and it directly threatens his underlying, you know what I mean? So it's just a great example of how incentives, and that's his own, um, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome, is his own famous quote, uh, and he's living by it day to day. So it's, it, I, I just find it hilarious that, you know, these these people so um, incentivized by the, this system that they've created with being able to print money out of thin air and, uh, and we've mentioned numerous times on this series already is this cantillion effect. So the closer you are to the money spigot where that gets dripped in, the better off you become because at, at the closer you are, typically the asset prices um, will will start to increase as they as the way just as a an outcome of the way that this money is injected into the economy raises all asset prices. And you know these rich capitalist people are the ones who own all the assets. So of course. Of course, you're going to benefit from that. It's like you're printing money. It's great. Look at the stock market. It's going. Look at my bottom line. It's going through the roof. I I've read his book, Charlie Poor Charlie's Almanac. Everything in it is pure wisdom. I think it was written like 20 or 30 years ago. But the fact that a guy who has benefited most from capitalism is going to back the CCP and give this them praise for what they're doing is laughable. And it's um, I don't know. It's an indictment of the Cantillion effect, exactly as you said, Daz. No, it's 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 mind blowing. I, I definitely, I'm on the exact same boat where I'm just like, man, you see these guys, and maybe they've just got those blinders on where they can't see that they have benefited so much from the current system. And what I think is so fascinating as well is the fact that uh, when we actually step back and look at our current monetary system, by being able to print money, you could argue, or even those in positions of power that say printing money is like we provide benefit to the economy. Even if you just step back and look at it from a moral standpoint, it is still totally unjust because inflation or monetary debasement through whether it's a fractional reserve system, whether it's through printing, is a violation of property rights because it is the involuntary theft of purchasing power, which is morally unjust. You're taking purchasing power from one individual and you're giving it to yourself to be able to spend where you see fit. And for those that are kind of, I myself am not religious, but for those that are religious, even the eighth commandment says, like you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, which is effectively you shall not steal. And so if you're religious and you're pro-fiat, you're going against the, the, the commandments, which is pretty fascinating, I find. Yeah, I think, I think a key point that can't be made enough is that back to the fallibility of humans, Josh, if it can be abused and misused, it will be at some point especially when the incentives are improperly aligned and a lot of the way that we transfer value across time and space right now is reliant on centralized decision makers. Even if they're benevolent, someone eventually is not going to be. And that's the way we have to think this through in the future from an ethical standpoint. Yeah. I think it's uh, proposed here to go. I want to talk just a bit about game theory and this is uh, kind of dovetails in with talking about humans and the way they interact with each other 
the way they do what's best for themselves and where the incentives lead them. Uh, Von Neumann in the, I think it was in the thirties off the top of my head, but he, um, he's the father of game theory. One of the smartest people that's ever lived according to a lot of his contemporaries at the time. Um, he basically invented game theory and it's basically the study of interactive decision-making where the outcome of each participant or player depends on the actions of everybody involved. Uh, so your strategy is affected by your opposing player's strategy. And there's a whole bunch of different game theory strategies you can talk about, but I want to talk about how this pertains to Bitcoin in a couple of different ways. So like, just say you're a, uh, a financial guy and you're looking at this thing called Bitcoin and you're seeing over the last 10 years, it has gone up, you know, it's the best performing asset in the last 10, 12 years or whatever. Eventually you're going to say to yourself, I need to get a, at least a little bit of this because maybe I don't understand it, but there's certainly something going on here that I don't understand, but having some exposure is something I want to do for my portfolio. And just that mindset between enough of them, the other strategists in that game, the other portfolio managers are going to have to be affected by that decision and they will likely start playing that game. And then when you think about this in the nation state level, say you're a nation state with a weak currency, the other players are bullying you. You have an option at an unstable currency, but at least it's a currency where you're not at a disadvantage to whoever controls the main currency, the US dollar, say. You take a risk, other countries follow suit. They don't want to be the ones left at the table, eating the table scraps. They don't want to be left behind. So eventually, first world countries are forced to participate. They want some exposure and they don't want to be left behind. So this game theoretical point here is that when one player takes a stab at it, other players are not forced to, but they are likely going to. Game theory is so fascinating when you start diving into it, because what you also start to realize is that we tend to think of, and I think we've touched on this in one of the previous episodes, we tend to think of just this money as this thing we transact with. But it is so much more than this thing that we transact with. It affects every single one of us and how we show up in this world. And so what you've probably heard a lot of Bitcoiners talk about is this thing called time preference. And time preference is a perfect example of how different types of money alter how we spend. And so just as you were kind of saying, uh, Josh, depending on money will influence how we behave in society and uh, how other actors are going to behave. And so time preference is basically whether or not we're going to look to save for the future or whether or not we're going to spend in the present. And when you have a money that is losing value over time, what that does is it does not incentivize saving. It incentivizes consumption because if our money is going to be losing value, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and get rid of it as quickly as possible. Whereas the opposite is true. If you've got a money such as, say, Bitcoin with a fixed supply, but if our global productivity and technology is advancing over time, then prices should come down. So that means that if our purchasing power is increasing rather than decreasing, then I'm actually incentivized to save for the future rather than consume in the present. So all of a sudden, that's actually altered how I show up in this world and how I behave. And so when people mm -hmm. think money is just this thing we interact with, it's so much more because it actually influences our behavior. It influences our values. It influences how we interact with one another, which I think is fascinating. Right. And you bring that back to the velocity of money idea that we talked about earlier. That means that now you have a fixed supply monetary unit that is incentivizing people to be very low velocity. So it, it, and then the fact that it has diminishing outlays every four years, all of these things kind of build on top of each other to make it a supercharged asset as far as yeah, accruing value. Uh, it's it's incredible. And the game theory plays out in a 
as far as I see it, in a very beautiful way. Thought I'd just touch on that. Uh, maybe just expand on that idea of velocity of money in case people new to the space aren't familiar with what that means. And it's just as simple as it. Uh, how many times does money change hands? So if they print money, hand it to their cronies, right? That's that's one layer. And then as like an asset gets sold, that's another layer. And then slowly but surely, that money will make its way through the economy into the hands of wage earners. And then it really does start to pick up velocity because my earnings is um, then I go and spend it and my spending is your earnings. And then obviously yeah. that's where it picks up. So if you introduce more currency units uh, at the top layer, eventually that does start to filter down. And that velocity of money is a long leading effect later on. It takes a little bit of time for its way to work through the economy. And that's why, you know, over the last couple of years, when they started from the 2008 global financial crisis, they started this thing called quantitative easing, which is basically just a fancy way of saying we're going to print a shitload of money. And we didn't see inflation straight away because it was stuck at the top uh, and it inflated all of the assets and it didn't really go down any further uh, straight away. But as we sort of kept going with that and then we hit covid uh, that crisis, and then we printed a shit ton of money. It was very quick in the on-flowing effects, and it was also coupled with um, su- uh, supply chain shortages and, and, and blockages in that. So when you have those two things, introduce more currency units and what resulted in a lot less goods and services, that's where we've really seen that velocity pick up. As you introduce more currency units, it filtered its way down um, very soon. And then obviously with the, you know, it's just a self feedback mechanism where it just starts to accelerate and um and we did see that tick up in velocity of money which ultimately led to higher um price inflation and like seb says like in this world where we've got um we're supposed to be you know gdp is growing productivity is growing um and increases in technology it's counterintuitive like an inflationary world shouldn't exist in that environment it should be a deflationary world but when we've got such a big debt burden in a deflationary world, that's a major, major problem. So again, it comes back to incentives. They're incentivized to create a system and create the economic environment whereby we flip that deflate those deflationary forces and inflate that debt away. So I think you touched on this earlier, Josh, is the the price of bread through that um, Weimar Germany hyperinflationary event went astronomical. So, you know, uh, the US at the moment has got a $31 trillion debt level. Uh, that doesn't look so bad when the loaf of bread's a thousand dollars a loaf, and that's basically the right. the event that they're trying to um, bring about is this inflationary world where that thirty one trillion dollars doesn't seem so bad. Totally, yeah. Uh, the, there is an escape, but it's not friendly to the the average consumer or saver. That's for sure. Um, it's funny we talked about Munger earlier. He's got that famous quote, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. And that quote to me, through these two eyes and this brain, screams Bitcoin. Uh, and, and, I, and I think kind of defines game theory, that quote. It's all about incentives. And, th- and that's where there's, there's two sort of interesting sides to process Bitcoin. One is kind of that ethical side, Seb, that you established. And then one is just the nuts and bolts, practical morality aside, what's going to work is money. Which I think is a good segue if you guys are comfortable into some of the characteristics of money, like what makes a good form of money, what's most important, and what's 
you know, the bloody meat we're throwing in the water that the sharks are invariably going to feed on. What about Bitcoin makes it so interesting? And as I said, off the top, useful. I think as, as a little bit of a teaser, one of the things that's most ironic for me, having been around Bitcoin for a while, is is when people do throw out the, what's the point? What is it used for? They'll call it useless. And I sit there dumbfounded and I think to myself, not only do I think that this thing is useful, I think it has the potential to be one of the most useful things on the planet. Like second to like air, water, and food, I think there's a possibility in the future you could, if you if you really distill what makes things move and what keeps people healthy and fed and alive, I think you could make the argument that one day money's an important enough tool and Bitcoin's good enough at this application that it's literally the most useful or one of the most useful things on the planet. Let's explore some of why maybe, what characteristics stand out to you. I know there's this is a little bit of a tough subject because there's there's different characteristics we can go through, but let's dive into what makes a good form of money and how Bitcoin applies. For sure. No, I, th- I think that is a perfect segue. And I think like the way I kind of tend to look at it is there's three main arguments that most people kick back at us. And to be honest, like even a week ago, I went over to a friend's place and I'm talking to my friend explaining this book that I'm writing at the moment that is all about incentives and it kind of ends with Bitcoin. And his roommate comes out and he's just like, are you quoting Hayek there? And I was like, yeah, how do you know about Hayek? And he's just like, oh, well, I'm actually a Keynesian and I really believe in Keynesian economics. I was like, oh my God. Anyway, so we ended up diving into this conversation and the three that he kind of threw at me when we started talking about Bitcoin are one, the volatility, like how can you use something that's volatile in price? Two, the lack right. of utility, as you were saying, Dan. And then three, the lack of intervention. We cannot uh, kind of devalue the currency. We cannot insert more monetary units. And so I was thinking, I'll, I'll kind of touch on volatility. You've touched on utility. And then if someone wants to touch on the interventionistic side of things, if we haven't already. But volatility is a really interesting one because when we look at central banks, most central banks have a mandate for price stability. And that sounds like something good. It's like, oh, well, I want my prices to stay relatively stable. But the reality is that, that is not conducive to making effective economic decisions because prices fluctuate because there is always changing supply and demand. If there's going to be right. more supply one day and there's going to be less demand, then price is going to drop. If there's going to be more demand and less supply, then price is going to rise. And what this does is it indicates to the free market where they can create value in society. Now, when you start printing more money, what ends up happening is you can massively increase demand above and beyond supply, which can create irreversible effects. And so a perfect example of this would be during uh, Stalin's era, I think it was just during, um, what was it called? During the uh, 50s or 60s, uh, he basically decided in his economy that they were going to have a massive metalwork sector. But this was not coming about from the free market. This was only coming about because he decided that. And so he just started funneling money into metalwork projects. So he built up all of these huge uh, steel uh, coking factories. And all of a sudden, he had 15 or 1600 factories throughout Russia that were making a ton of steel, so much so that he hadn't actually thought about, well, where are they going to get the resources to actually make the steel? And so they started depleting all of the natural environment. And then half of the factories over a period of five years had to shut down. So now you've wasted all of these resources and all of these factories, and you've depleted the environment. And so many towns that had these factories around them ended up having just huge slag heaps of toxic chemicals and people were being decimated with health issues. And so this is because we are kind of going against natural supply and demand. We're not reacting 
to what the economy is telling us. We're just believing that we know what is best by putting more monetary units into the system, uh, increasing demand or artificial demand. So I think that when it comes to price stability, it is a misnomer because prices should naturally fluctuate because it allows us to make important economic decisions as to whether or not there is a must supply or enough demand and so on. I think this volatility thing is such a, this is going to get a, anyone who's a Star Trek fan is going to get a kick out of this, a Kobayashi Maru. It's an impossible game to win when you're arguing with somebody about this. There, we've just never seen uh, something monetized from zero over a period of like, what is it now? 14 years. It went from in 2011, zero dollars to $30. 2014, 30 to 1154. 2017, $1,100 to 1,900. And then 2021, $1,900 to $69,000. Like gold had to monetize at some period of time, probably 10,000 years ago, over a period of hundreds of years, probably because the technology just wasn't there for people to actually understand the stuff at the speed that we are now. But the volatility is just a natural occurrence of something monetizing over a very short period of time from zero to any number is going to be incredibly volatile. Um, that just makes it really difficult to have a real argument with somebody about like the volatility being good or bad. It, it's inherently volatile just because there's a very, very, there's very few people have any true understanding of what this thing is. Number one, there's 10,000 alternatives that seem to the layperson as if they are viable which they very likely aren't. But if you have no idea what you're looking at, they seem like they could be. Totally. And it's just, this volatility is something you have to get comfortable with because it's not going away anytime soon. And Seb, I'd be really interested. Um, did you learn anything from this guy, the uh, the Keynesian? Like, I, I'm always interested in like, I'm sure you had a rational discussion with him and you went back and forth, but is there anything that you drew from him that you thought, oh shit, like that's a great point? It, man, it's such a challenging one because I very much, I believe we should always try to form our opinions at the very last moment and go into every single conversation as objective as possible. For sure, and man. the thing that is just so challenging is that I think that we've never truly had a period. The closest I can think of is, say, like the Florentine, but we've never really had a true yeah. period of free money and where there's been no intervention whatsoever and it has been decided by the free market. So it's really hard to create comparative examples of showing why this may be more successful or the benefits over, say, a fiat interventionist system. Uh, but it's really challenging as well, because at the same time, his approach was, he said that my argument sounded as if I had watched a few YouTube videos about Bitcoin. Uh, and then immediately <laughs> it's just like, ah, I've spent the last like four or 5,000 hours diving into this subject. And then he said that, well, fact checkers say that Bitcoin it doesn't really provide value. So but to me, I was okay. just like, oh, I don't know how far this argument's going to go. It's, yeah, it's really hard to be objective with somebody who's going to just toss you into the fire like that without actually 100%. giving real reasoning to what you're arguing. You know, it's yeah. that's the hard thing. Like there's so few people that will rationally displace their own thoughts and ideas to, to actually examine yours and vice okay. versa. Like if you're able to do that, you're in like the 1% of people who can reason because there seems to be very few of them these days. When it's tough, because I, I asked him, I was just like, okay, give me, name the the areas about around Bitcoin that you believe are like in the middle of the, the way media kind of portrays Bitcoin, name the areas of Bitcoin, which you believe do not necessarily have value or why Bitcoin you believe is going to fail. And kind of, he touched on these, like the volatility, the lack of utility, the intervention, that it's not being used, all of these type of things. And you can, once you actually start discussing these and breaking them down, you can give a rational argument back to them that I would actually argue the opposite. It's just 
The problem is mainstream media is not incentivized to promote Bitcoin as it stands, given our macroeconomic climate. And so it's, it's challenging to fight what's challenging to debate individuals that only look at mainstream media and are not willing to actually go down the rabbit hole and read resources written by individuals that understand the subject. Yeah. Sorry to keep chewing on that bone, but again, it just falls down to incentives and like the mainstream media are obviously funded by very large corporations with a certain narrative to push, right? So anything that's sort of fringe to that mainstream is, is just pushed aside even for curious journalists, which is a, is a real shame. But like just bringing it back to like volatility and um, trying, I mean, you can't sugarcoat the short-term volatility, but as a society, we've built up so many mechanisms by which you get your dopamine hit from the short term. You know, you log into Facebook and you see all your likes from your post of your freaking eggs Benedict in the morning, right? So, you know, it's that short term dopamine hit. And that's why it's so hard to get so many people to look at a long term view of this thing where you just see these cycles like Josh was pointing out, all of the increases in price big 80 percent drawdown increase in price 80 percent drawdown over these cycles and i'm a bit of a cycle maximalist until proven otherwise these things are going to continue on and and all i keep when i'm faced with those problems is <clears throat> just looking at that equilibrium between supply and demand uh, and how price discovery happens with any asset between those supply and demand and when we look at bitcoin's fundamentals we know it's a fixed cap supply we know that it's a deliberate um predictable issuance over you know the next 100 years uh to that cap of 21 million and then all you need to look at is what's going on uh worldwide in terms of adoption people are getting curious yeah. people are drawn into maybe i should check this thing out it, you know like the perfect allocation uh, well the, the 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 worst allocation you can have to bitcoin is zero right so again it's mm. it's about incentives right. and skin in the game josh you you now this a bit earlier all you've got to do is just make your first purchase of it and then that incentive is just inherent in you to want to learn it more and as you start to dig tear off the layers and start to really start to educate yourself um you're going to want to own more of it which is going to drive your um you know your, your incentive to learn more about it to to build up on your conviction and it's just about trying to get people to zoom out from this short-term incentive i need a quick fix now and that's exactly what the crypto markets and all those distractions occur it's gambling it's basically i can buy this coin today and flip it next week for a hundred percent like that's what the attraction is but if we zoom out and take a long-term view of this thing you can deal with that volatility very very easily by just allocating establishing a, yeah. a bitcoin savings plan getting allocation to it you while the price is going like this, you can smooth that out as a line of best fit and you become that line of best fit. So your allocation to it is is incrementally growing and you're not exposing yourself too much. You're getting, you know, um, you, you're getting access to it and you're smoothing out that volatility over time. And you just need to take a long-term view of this thing. Start to shift your whole mentality around what you do week to week as far as getting out of that fiat currency um, because it's losing value over time, and that whole the whole society is just built around that. This is one of the things that I like to ask people when they say that this is tulips or this is some other nonsense. I, I challenge those people to tell me or give me one example in history of something, a commodity, a stock, or anything there that they want to talk about that has bubbled itself up, has gone completely fervor like this four different times in a decade. 
something that has every four years on a cycle turned into a Gartner hype cycle where it's had a blow off top died, you know, remained completely dead for two years and then suddenly revived itself in order to do it again times 10. The there's nobody that I've ever had that conversation with that could identify one other thing that has ever had those characteristics. And so the argument would be that this is simply a monetization schedule more than it is tulips from the uh, the Dutch or the internet explosion in the early 2000s. Like that was a one and done. It didn't happen again. So the, the, the point that you just made, Josh, about tulips, like if I was to talk to that that guy that you interacted with, Seb, and he's sitting there and he's giving you all the reasons he doesn't like it. But as a Bitcoiner, you just stand there and you stare back at these people and you say, let's remove all the ethical stuff. This fucking thing keeps working. It's been insanely volatile for a decade and it keeps accruing on a relative basis an enormous amount of value, which is one caution I would throw out there to a newcomer. Just because you don't like it or you don't think it's good or you don't think it provides the the regular inflation schedule that you've grown accustomed to because you're a Keynesian, um, Bitcoin doesn't give a fuck and new to the, nor does the game theory and incentives. And I, I think of the Saifedean Amus quote, history shows us it is not possible to insulate yourself from the consequences of others holding money that is harder than yours. Let's bring this back to the Monopoly board. If I have fucking Park Place and you're holding hundreds and the banker has four other boards behind him and all the cash and he just keeps spitting out hundreds at nauseum, guess what's going to go up in value? My park place, right? So even like ethics removed, and maybe we can parlay into scarcity here at some point, but this is the hardest money humanity has ever had. It is. It works in the digital age. It is a store of value, bearer digital asset that is more scarce than anything on the planet. And the supply side is totally and completely inelastic, meaning none, no more of this comes online. It is completely programmatic. It's a complete brick wall. All we're concerned about is the demand side. And there's a lot at work that indicates people are going to desire this because of its characteristics. And in so doing, the price is going to go up. There's only one way the, the equation moves. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like, I don't like it. Well, it just keeps doing this over and over again. So get with the program or face the consequences is, is what I would say. No, spot on. And I think that there's also just one more thing that we want to touch on on volatility because we haven't actually touched on it, which is the fact that when we look at the price volatility that we're experiencing in Bitcoin, I would argue, and I'm sure that you guys would agree, that this price volatility is a product of our current monetary system. It is not Bitcoin in itself. And it is because we kind of introduced the idea of Gresham's law, like uh, bad money pushes out good. And when you have a system where over time our money is worth less, people are incentivized to take risk. They want to try and outpace the rate of inflation. And so they're jumping into assets. They're jumping on speculative ideas, trying to outpace inflation in whatever means necessary. Yep. Now, the problem is if someone owns a bunch of speculative assets that are illiquid, but then they also own Bitcoin, which is highly liquid, as in you can enter and exit it really quickly. What ends up happening is the moment the central bank decides, you know what, we're going to tighten monetary policy. All of a sudden, all of those individuals that have a bunch of Bitcoin that is highly liquid, they need capital because they're struggling because their assets are declining. So they start selling Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin at the moment is kind of stuck in this cycle where it's still a product of centralized monetary policy. And it is moving based on Jay Powell and whether he decides to tighten or uh, loosen. And that is kind of a problem with our current system. 
totally. The, the only other point I was going to make for for someone else, someone that's that's sitting there and that's newer, it, it Bitcoin is new. It's it's relatively new on the landscape of money. Volatility is the market's expression of uncertainty. If a if a fucking three foot tall alien that's purple walks into the basement in front of me, I'm going to be very uncertain about it. And this thing is very otherworldly. It's it, it fits in no monetary categories that anybody's used to, and so it's going to be volatile, right? We've we've highlighted a number of reasons. I don't see this going away anytime soon. If this frustrates you, I'm sorry because I think this thing is going to be volatile for a long, long time as it monetizes. Dan, we've uh, we've talked about you doing shrooms before these shows. I don't think. Uh I think we should cut that out, you know? Yeah, that's where I see aliens. Yeah, these aliens won't exist without them. Yeah, are you sure the purple alien isn't in your room? Because it's like reflecting <laughs> off the back wall right now. <laughs> There's uh, uh, one, more, one more thing to tie up a couple of these other thoughts is uh, I mentioned the chart of gold in Weimar, Germany. Um, and uh, I was trying to find that chart now and I'll dig around and see if I can find it. Because uh, apparently the Bitcoin price, when overlaid on that chart, through our current period versus the the German uh, the, the price of gold in, in during that period in Weimar Germany, there's a very high correlation between what Bitcoin is doing now and the price discovery that gold went through through that hyperinflationary event. So if I can find that, I'll I'll include it uh, in the show notes. And then um, I think there was a really shitty dad joke the other day that you mentioned an alien in your basement. It's also um, where do you so it reminded me of this joke. Where do you store your Fiat in your house in the basement? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think it was Foss's joke. Actually, I stole it off yeah. Foss. Head, head, I, I feel head like we do quickly for the 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 more novice listener. We do need to define the scarcity of Bitcoin in some way, shape, or form. Does someone want to throw that ball here and just en- just enumerate for somebody why this thing is so scarce and and some of the math behind that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, there's a couple of things I want to. This kind of dovetails with something else I want to talk about too, but. Bitcoin has got a hard level of 21 million Bitcoins that will ever exist. And that's on a schedule that should run out in roughly the year 2140. So every four years, the amount that can be mined is cut in half. And that is on a schedule that is established that will continue for the next four years for the next 100 years or so. That is not something that can be deviated from. That's not something somebody can change. There's no single person or people that can have any attenuation as far as that schedule is concerned. So on this subject, though, I wanted to talk about how path dependency and Bitcoin are kind of coalesced together. And path dependency is the idea that there are certain actions that have already been set in motion that dictate how things can coalesce in the future. Like theoretical physics, the idea is if there's a light cone that exists 10 million light years away and we are in that light cone, you're going to be able to see that thing. If you can imagine like a cone of light expanding at a, a certain um, width and expanding over a period of time, if you're not inside that light cone, you simply don't know it and you'll never see it. And everything outside that light cone doesn't exist in the reality of that light cone. And that's kind of like path dependency in Bitcoin. Everything outside of the constituent parts that has already been ossified in stone in Bitcoin simply doesn't exist and can't exist. Bitcoin is already on a path that can't be deviated with. When it comes to Bitcoin and this kind of 21 million, this idea of kind of mining Bitcoin can sometimes be a little confusing because you can think of it as like gold. Well, if I mine gold and I mine more gold, am I not just going to run out of this or I'm going to reach this supply cap of 21 million faster? But what's really fascinating about Bitcoin, and I'm sure we'll jump on it in the the next episode as well, because I think we dive into 
Bitcoin a little more specifically in its functionality. But we have this thing called the difficulty adjustment. And that basically is that in gold, and I'm going to use the example of gold first, in gold, if we suddenly find a huge amount of reserves, then miners can jump on these reserves and start digging them out of the ground. And this increases the supply of gold above and beyond what the normal supply of gold is. So we're actually, we're expanding the supply and devaluing the price of gold. Whereas when it comes to Bitcoin, this cannot happen. And the reason why this cannot happen is that as miners, what ends up happening is we've got blocks that appear every 10 minutes. So every 10 minutes, these appear because miners have to solve these complex equations, and they're not really equations, but we're just going to use the term equations for the sake of this. They have to solve these complex mathematical equations. And when they solve one of these equations, a block is born. And in that block, uh, there is some Bitcoin. Now, what's really interesting is you could think, well, if they solve these equations faster and faster and faster, they're not going to be mining more and more Bitcoin. But the difficulty adjustment means that if miners start solving the blocks faster, then it will make those equations harder. If there's less miners, or if those suddenly the miners are struggling to solve the blocks, then over time it will make those equations easier. And that basically means that over time, there is a supply curve that is kind of somewhat predictable. You're going to get short-term blips here and there where there's a little more supply here and a little less there. But over the long run, you're always going to have this 10-minute block time just because it is able to adjust the difficulty of these equations so that no matter how many miners there are, no matter how efficient the technology becomes in mining Bitcoin, there will always be a predictable supply curve of Bitcoin. I don't know if I explained that well enough. Yeah, I think that was well done. I've actually, a simpler way to think about it is imagine you're trying to find a needle in a haystack and there's a small haystack. And if if the needle's found too easily, they simply pile on more straw, more straw until it takes the same amount of time or roughly the same amount of time to find that needle. And that's basically how Bitcoin mining works. It just becomes more and more difficult the more people are trying to find it so you got more farmers looking through the straw there's going to be a shit ton more straw just to try to make that roughly that 10 minute period before somebody finds that needle i was just going to just touch on that idea of scarcity too and again it's just human nature to want to collect things right so if something's in short supply um it's just a, a fundamental basic human need to want that it's it's about jealousy and and incentives again uh you know that's why you we've you know through the years you've had trading cards um go back a bit further like glass beads formed a, a bit of money you know because people saw value in it and a, and a, and uh uh this idea of scarcity it's like well glass beads aren't around africa you know that we can't make them we don't have the processing plants and all that sort of thing they ended up being there and it's like i want that shiny thing on my neck do you know what i mean so it, it's uh it, it just you know and that's why bitcoin ultimately has uh, a long-term value proposition is because it is ultimately scarce it it you know for all of the other properties that it solves um people are going to want to own it because it's it's just it's a natural basic human nature to want scarce things for sure and the scarcity component of bitcoin is something that a lot of naysayers kind of roll their eyes to it's talked about you know just constantly in the bitcoin space but I, but truthfully it, it can't be discussed enough like it is the soil out of which bitcoin grows it is the discovery that makes it so tremendous from a game theoretic standpoint it, it is the discovery of absolute scarcity. It has a terminal inflation rate of zero. It is the, the word that I think should be emphasized is it is totally predictable. It is the world's first ruler for money with a measurement that cannot change. It is 12 inches, 30 centimeters, and it is never going to change. 
in future episodes, we will explain why that's the case. We're going we're gonna to get into the mechanics and explore why it's immutable. But let's, let's work off the assumption right now that it is and that the supply schedule can't change, which I believe is, is, is true and are very, very, very likely. The significance of that discovery, it just can't be overemphasized. And to add numbers, the scarcest thing on the planet you know, through time that's worked as money has been gold. It's got an annual supply inflation rate, I think, of about 2%. Currently, Bitcoin's at 1.7%, and as the decades trot on, it's gonna, it's gonna, as it approaches that supply cap, it's gonna go down. The next halving in 2024, it will be like officially no holes barred, the scarcest thing on the planet. So that's there, and then you add in the workability of all these other functions, and that's where hyper bullishness really comes into play for the likes of the four of us. Both of you guys have touched on something that's really important, and and that's where we kind of highlighted at the start, which is. If we ignore, so we've got Gresham's law, which is when there's legal tender laws in place and they say which money we are allowed to use and which ones we cannot. When it comes to legal tender laws, naturally the bad money pushes out the good. But under a free market, we have Thiers law. And Thiers law basically states that good money drives out bad as people will only, uh, people will only through trade request good money. They're not going to receive poor forms of money. And so if we go back to prior to fiat, what we saw over history is this trending in scarcity. So it started out where people would just barter with one another, but barter wasn't very efficient, so people naturally moved to things like salt. But the problem with salt is although you may have scarcity in one area, you don't have scarcity in others. And as Daz highlighted, uh, when it came to glass beads in Africa, they found it incredibly challenging to make glass beads. But when the European settlers came down to Africa and they started to recognize why are they trading with these things like glass beads, we can produce these things en masse. So what do they do? They go and produce millions of these glass beads, ship them down on boats, debase the currency, which arguably led to the slave trade. And so then people started to look for other things like metals. And then metals went from copper. And then they went into things like silver. And then eventually we kind of landed on gold. And the reason why gold has been in its position for hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of years is because of its scarcity. We've never found something more scarce. But now we have something that is arguably more scarce and it is truly scarce because even something like gold in theory what happens if a comet with 50 tons of gold hits earth that's going to massively inflate the supply of gold this cannot happen with bitcoin which i think is really really fascinating and it probably segues perfectly into some of the other uh the other properties of money if anyone wants to take it or does you got it yeah i was just going to frame up sort of that evolution of money is is sort of how our money takes form throughout the ages is it starts with a store of value which we've we've talked about today like volatility wise zoom out bitcoin is a sensational store of value until proven otherwise uh if you get exposure to it early enough and you hold it long enough it is going to store your value extremely extremely well um obviously we've touched on it ad nauseum deal with the volatility but there are tools at your disposal to do that but as we move on from store of value it morphs into the next iteration or evolution of money which uh, needs to be a medium of exchange so that's where you are we're, that we're in that period right now with the lightning network which we'll explain in, in depth over the next couple of episodes but it sits on top and it's opening up this layer for transaction um, for people to be able to exchange that value quickly easily cheaply um, and it a couple of uh, properties that we've set um, touched on already is instantaneous settlement transfer of that value with no trust so it's ticking off all of these boxes in which we have deviated from different forms of money over time from 
barter to medium of exchange, uh, sorry, to, to metals, to um, fiat, is it's always been these trade-offs, right, as we're sort of going through. So just bring it back, medium of exchange, store of value, medium of exchange. We're very much discovering that at the moment where we're building out that circular economy where there are the layers to enable that medium of exchange. And the last iteration of an effective money is a unit of account. And again, so in the Bitcoin community, we're starting to discover that um, as the final iteration of the money, but that's going to take a longer period of time as a widely adopted medium. And that's when you start pricing things in that in that money. So it's going to take some time. Um, but, you know, once we start to think about how much Bitcoin does it take for a loaf of bread, and that's where the saturation within that monetary framework needs to needs to happen where that volatility isn't as bad because you know that's what makes a bad money and a hyperinflationary event is is that volatility in the money where people will exit that currency for anything that they can get their hands on um and it's too early for bitcoin to satisfy that because we're still in that um we're still in that volatile range where you know your price of goods would be would be volatile but it's working the exact opposite way to fiat so eventually as all value accrues to bitcoin to this ultimately scarce asset that volatility will smooth out as it starts to overtake gold in market cap and 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 it's only a matter of time until it starts to suck in real estate gold equities bonds where people start to value bitcoin over any other thing because it is the ultimately scarce provable trustless asset people will naturally accrue to it and as that occurs that volatility naturally smooths out over the longer term and that's where we tick off that final box as unit of account where we start pricing things in bitcoin as you touched on this a bit um i want to touch on portability a little bit more portability is a place where bitcoin crushes everything else especially for settlement so portability is basically how easily this thing is to be sent to a counterparty Daz is in Australia. We're in the US. I could send Daz some Bitcoin. He will receive it in 10 minutes or so. He can verify it with his node, assay it as he would do with gold. Within an hour, he'll have final settlement. He'll be good to go. This is where gold's true weakness is. I can hear gold bugs listening to this saying, well, gold does all the same things as long as you actually take physical possession of it. It's just as good, if not better. And I would agree with that for some of those points. But Portability is, in essence, what makes Bitcoin truly better than gold. And that means that you don't have to centralize it. You don't have to have a counterparty, a centralized counterparty that can lie to you about, like FTX did to a whole shitload of people, said we have your Bitcoin, but they didn't. You don't have to trust this centralized third party. You can tell yourself with your node that you own this amount of Bitcoin. This person sent you this amount of Bitcoin. You own that Bitcoin and you have it in your cold stored wallet or wherever. That is truly one of the things that stands out far and above every other kind of money that's ever existed is the fact that it can be transferred at the speed of light, verified within the hour, and it's final settlement, and it's it's done. And that is a huge, huge deal. Let's um let's let's do it right now. I'll spin up an invoice for a thousand sats and you someone send me lightning. We'll do it live. What do you got there, <laughs> Seb? Yeah, let's do it. All right, man. I'm going to open up my. So this is a live, uh, live demonstration of the power of lightning. So Seb's in Canada. I'm in Australia. I'm going to spin up a lightning invoice for a thousand sats, and I'm using Moon Wallet trademark. 
advertising, right? Moonwalk. Okay. Here's my... All right, so I'm going to hold up QR code to my thing. Seb's going to scan that with his wallet, and hopefully he can pick up with the resolution. I don't know if the resolution will wait. I think we got it. Let's see if we can... Pay a thousand sets. Okay, I'm paying right now. Nice. You can see. Well, look at all my funds there, boys. Look at all those Loaded. Sats. Loaded. Damn. Doxing myself here. Doxing my stack. <laughs> Here's why I love this demonstration. Love this. And it's because... We're talking about portability in the digital age. So we've we've established through the first couple episodes of this series that a lot of the shortcomings of money, supply inflation, censorship, all these things are the function of the centralization of monetary ledgers, right? People controlling how the money moves, when it moves, when you can transact, when you can't, right? So we've suggested that to fix these shortcomings, we need a, a form of money that can be self-possessed, self-custodied, a bearer asset, if you will. What bearer asset is going to function in the digital age? There it goes. Okay, so that just went. So th the question that needs to be asked if you're, if you're inquiring into this space, this is a form of money that's absolutely scarce that you can possess on your own without any intermediary. What is going to work to that end in the digital age? There are not many options. In my opinion, there is only one. And you're demonstrating live here the portability of a digital bearer asset. If we take other forms of money, gold is the one we've picked on the most here, that, that meet some of these characteristics that, that match Bitcoin and some of these attributes, you cannot do what you just did. And the whole world is moving digital. We are not going to be transacting and settling with gold bullion in the year 2120 or pick a year in the future. So you have to start looking through this new prism, this new paradigm of the 21st century and beyond of, of not just a heavily digital, but an almost entirely predominantly digital world. What form of money is going to work? I feel like this is a good good transition point and, and it, it kind of may, maybe could be subsumed under this characteristic of portability. And that's just picking out more of the, the power of this censorship resistant bearer asset component of Bitcoin because it is radically portable, right? It's not just portable between two friends on a phone. This thing is, is portable as a refugee outside of Ukraine, as a Venezuelan whose currency is hyperinflating, someone that's in an autocratic, tyrannical regime who wants to move their entire net worth because it's stored in their brain portable. We're talking about transcendent final destination in terms of money portability that works in the 21st century yeah i i mean you raised so many good points mate um like that wasn't possible uh, a couple of years ago for we just sent 30 cents worth of australian dollar value internationally i mean it, granted it wasn't instantaneous right there's a bit of plumbing behind using different wallets and a different few different reasons but that was quick enough for that to be amazingly you know, we just sent 30 cents worth of value for next to nothing in cost from one border to the other. I've used this personally for purchases overseas because it was the easiest frictionless way of transacting value to make a purchase. Like, um, we're still so, you know, in a globalized world, we are still so restricted on our payment rails mm. through the traditional system that they're, they're dinosaurs, man. They're just so far left behind. And, the, the you know, you, you raised this point, Dan. No one could stop that. There's absolutely not a power in the world that could have stopped that transaction or reversed that transaction. That is final. It is settled. It is in my 
in a wallet that I hold the keys for, um, nobody else can can seize or, or or reverse. And that's just such a profound understanding. Like it just looks so basic. It looks so easy. And it's like, wow, big deal. But when you really start thinking about what just went on there and the implications that that opens up for the world, um, particularly in people in authoritarian regimes, it is just a mind-blowing technology and it cannot be stopped. When I think as well, like something that is so profound about this technology, and I think we touched on it in the last episode, which is the fact that it kind of dematerializes borders. Because if we think about all other assets, whether it is our house, well, the reality is our house is taxed by the government. It's fixed in place. We can't move it. When we think about equities, well, equities are held in a domicile brokerage account. We can't. It's hard for us to transfer them internationally. When we think about cash in the bank, there's lots of restrictions in place. It becomes almost impossible for us to move large sums of money or large sums of value overseas. And so suddenly when you have an asset which is trustless, we don't have to rely on anyone else. It's permissionless. We don't need permission to move this asset. All of a sudden, capital is going to flow to whichever countries offer the most value. Now, that is fascinating because those countries that do not offer value, if their people start fleeing, then those dictators, those people in authoritarian positions are no longer going to have the capital to continue doing what they're doing. And so over time, talking about game theory, it incentivizes nations and those in positions of power to actually offer value, which is phenomenal. This is the first time in history we've ever had that. Amen. And it's really, really important to um, point out, we've touched on this a couple of times in the last couple of episodes, that idea of a protocol. And, and that's basically just another point to highlight. What we used was a protocol then. So Seb was using a totally different wallet um, manu- you know, uh, developer to me, um, but we were using the same fundamental protocol to be able to transfer that value. So we're not putting any trust necessarily. There's going to be a whole market worth of participants and developers in this um, that are using this underlying what we're solving is the protocol level. It's the same with you know TCP/IP, mm. and um, Dan, you touched on that really well last in the last episode. Is is this protocol is enabling transfer of value, and there's going to be a whole market full of participants on top of that for you to be able to choose what 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 values that you hold and how you want to interact with Bitcoin is going to become something that uh, is more. There's going to be many many different options and trade offs on the stack that's built up upon this to be able to just enable you to interact with it how you want. You might want to hold your own keys. That might frighten the fuck out of you. Uh, so you might want to, uh, you know, put a bit of trust in in a system um, with, with the trade-offs that come with that. But it's that stack that's getting enabled more and more as we go along to be able to make it easier for every every person. If you're not techn- technologically um, uh, capable, then there will be offerings out there to be able uh, to, to satisfy how you want to interact with it. Yeah. Hey, Seb, your comment a second ago that Bitcoin dematerializes borders. That's tweet worthy. We'll send that out later tonight. It's such a good point, though. Certain portals open up in the world that you can't close, right? If we look at the Internet Protocol Suite, it, it, that was a global information portal that opened up and dematerialized a lot of boundaries around information. I think Bitcoin did the same thing. Bitcoin is a global money portal that opened up and there's no closing it. And for me, the killer app of Bitcoin, the royal flush of Bitcoin is the scarcity card coupled with the digital and bearer cards, right? And bearer, we could blend with the word self-custody, right? When you think about the, the things in the world right now that you can actually fully possess yourself, the list is very, very short. 
um, very short. I mean, I, you you talked about real estate. There's 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 intermediaries there, but let's let's just give it the benefit of the doubt and say that could be one. You got precious metals, which we've covered. We've got physical cash, and then you're kind of left with with Bitcoin. And when you look at the shortcomings of those things, the borders, the limitations, the centralized parties that are still involved. You know, we, we talked in our episode with Matt Pines recently about Bitcoin just being a giant game of elimination, right? And you start crossing off this and that. And and the, the only truly global asset that has the liquidity and, and the network effect that enables you to possess your money totally irrespective of borders and limitations and human beings getting in your way, there is only one thing. And to suggest that that is not going to be in high demand, to me, just seems asinine. It is so unique in what it's accomplishing that to suggest that the demand for this thing is going to go down on a decades-long time frame seems completely ridiculous to me when you follow the game theory. You'd say, okay, well, there's going to be demand for it. Now you're up against the supply card, the scarcity card. And you start putting the pieces together and you realize this poker game is probably going to be won by by one player. Yeah, it's a, <clears throat> the other thing that you said that resonated with me too was dissolving borders and i'm sure you've read the sovereign individual but all of these things i mean it's 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 insane that that book was written like 25 years ago and it's insane how it predicted so many of the things that we're seeing now and if that book is to be believed or if the arc of it makes sense which so far it seems to it makes a lot of sense that all of this game theory will play out where people will leave countries that are onerous they will walk away use their feet to vote and they will have money that they can take with them. Unlike Weimar Germany, where almost everybody, there were, all, there were a shitload of rich people who were completely destroyed because they were invested in government war bonds at the time in Germany. And they were trapped in the system, Josh, right? Because of the, the technological limitations, they were trapped in that system to some extent. Exactly. They couldn't take their money. And now they have the ability, like if we could transport Bitcoin back to that time and those people had the foresight to understand what was going on, they could have left Germany. They could have come to the US and they could have had their entire net wealth intact. They could have started their life with not without missing a beat the entire time. And that's the difference between the technology and what it's enabling today versus 100 years ago. And it's a massive tectonic shift that is going to put massive pressure on nation states to have to listen to their constituency. They can no longer ignore people because those people can just leave and they don't have to have any I mean, they can they can say there's an exit tax, but guess what? How are you going to take that money unless they literally put you in a, a cage that and even then they can't take the money unless you give them the keys and you know what? They can put a gun to your head and they'll get the keys. But short of that, there's nothing they can do to get the money. It's a game of whack-a-mole because the things in it's natively digital. It's global. So if you if you say, hey, if you have Bitcoin, we're going to put you in a cage here. Well, somebody else in the world is going to see the opportunity. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, there may be a risk exactly. if you're confined to a certain jurisdiction, but on a long enough time frame, this thing's just going to keep popping up wherever it sees fit. It's a freaking mushroom at the in the in the forest. The game is basically be don't be vocal about it like we are, because we're going to be put in cages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just shut the fuck up and own some yeah. Bitcoin and don't say anything. And it's such a, uh, a good point that needs underscoring, I think, is just the enablement that this gives everybody globally. Um, I mean, the fuckery over the last couple of years, like there's been many a people in many a jurisdiction in many a developed country that was totally blown away with the authoritarian regimes that were, were put in, you know, 
uh, whether you agree with that shit or not, right? Um, I think more than anything else, you need to understand this thing because there may come a time where ever you are, shit turns ugly. Mm. And if you got, ha- you know, you just got to look at the examples of refugees fleeing. Like they leave with the clothes on their back, they abandon their homes, they abandon their wealth, and they can they take what with whatever they can take with them uh, and run the risk of being seized. If you can cross a border with your entire net wealth in 12 words in your brain, that is, if nothing else, learn how to fucking use this thing because that is powerful enough as, as it is, with regardless of any of the other benefits that, you know, learning about Bitcoin with the transaction layer and the store of value and all of these things that, like, just knowing that, you know, if you're a family man and you, you, you know, you're the major breadwinner, I think for anybody, you'd just be curious and be like, hmm, that's possible. I need to learn about how to do that in case I'm put in a position where I've got to relocate in a fucking hurry. Like, it might not even be an authoritarian government. It could be world war, right? You need to flee wherever you are because, you know, there's another country coming to invade. If I can take my entire net wealth with me in 12 words in my brain and just invent a story that uses those 12 words to make it nice and memorable, then that is a powerful, powerful offering in and of itself. No, and... and you guys both touched on something so 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 powerful, which is the fact that when it was you you in particular, Joss, which is the fact that when it comes to violence in our fiat system, when all assets are pretty much either controlled by a third party or if they are physical in nature, then they can be easily obtained through violence. All of a sudden, we have an extractive system where basically the person with the largest army, the person who is the most powerful, has the potential to gain power above and beyond everyone else. Whereas all of a sudden, when you have something that is digitally native and it is self-sovereign, as in we can take self-custody of this asset, all of a sudden, you cannot effectively obtain this through coercion or violence. The only way to obtain it is value creation. And so you have to cooperate with these individuals. And that's just where I think it's so fascinating because if we go back to the game theory, you're basically incentivizing cooperation. You're incentivizing a system where we're creating value rather than extracting value. Mm. A lot of the arc of this episode is us establishing two things. The fact that this is a a digital asset that is non-confiscatable across both time and space. Right? It's non-confiscatable across time because of its scarcity. Right, It's resistant to unpredictable supply inflation. It's the scarcest thing. We've established that. But it's also non-confiscatable across space because of its tremendous portability, its censorship resistance, its self-custody ability. I'm going to keep throwing out the word demand. This doesn't just apply to the individual. This applies to corporations. This applies to nation states. This is something else we talked about with Matt Pines. We live in a in a world where FX reserves at the nation state level are conditioned, right? Russia just had, and I'm not pro-Russia here, whatever, whatever side you're on. The point is they had $300 billion of dollar-denominated assets that they no longer have access to anymore. So even at the FX reserve manager level, they're going to be looking for a form of money that's non-confiscatable across time and space. It's the first thing to do this. It's the only thing to do this, which is another episode we'll talk about because you may be sitting here thinking, oh, these other, all these other cryptos do the same thing. They do not. There is human involvement. There's over-centralization in the rest of this crypto space that looks nothing like Bitcoin, there's only one truly decentralized protocol, in my view, 
that is going to reliably execute on what it purports to do. And it's worth, um, you know, reiterating again, there's two sides to this thing. There's Bitcoin, the asset, and there's Bitcoin, the network. Mm. And the network is growing exponentially. Um, whether you, you, you know, nobody's asking you to marry Bitcoin. It's totally up to you if you want to store any of your wealth in Bitcoin, right? But the, the, the fundamental protocol layer for the, for the network itself, people are going to be using this hand over fist, jumping in and off, in and off as a payment rail between. So it's really important that people start to understand the differences between network and asset. Asset is the price denominated in US dollars, right? It's the volatile thing we're talking about. But regardless of what you think about that, no one can argue that the network is not growing exponentially and the real use cases building out worldwide around this thing. Coupled with that is the need to keep... I mean, it's a, it's a classic example of it... Um, against the argument of Bitcoin wastes so much energy, and we'll dive right into that. Like, it, it does consume a lot of energy, but that's what makes it secure, right? But it's people say, well, why would you want to waste that much money uh, or that much energy on, on this thing? And it, it is the, it's the network and the payment rails that are enabling people to cross borders, refugees, uh, you know, to carry their net wealth with them. It's enabling is banking the unbanked in these developing countries like people don't ac have access to bank accounts but they've got access to mobile phones it's finally giving them the rails to hold and interact digitally globally where they have never had that before and if that is that worth a little bit of energy absolutely like it's such a place of privilege to talk down to that aspect um when you're in your cozy uh, you know, you've got your banking account, you've got, you know, uh, access to fiat money, you've got access to loans and credit. It's such a such a place of privilege in order to talk down to that level that uh, of what the network is doing for the globe. It's it's it's, it's incredible. I, I wanted to, to follow up real quick on what you said, Daz. It brings to mind that another attribute of Bitcoin in my head is it's radically inclusive, right? I mean, it, it's it's a form of money that not only does all the things we've established here, but it does this for an, a, a, a massive swath of people that didn't have access to financial tools previously. We're, we're moving into uh -huh. a world where people are going to completely leapfrog the traditional finance system. Anyone with access to the internet or a smartphone is going to have access to financial infrastructure. So it's not just doing these things marvelously. It's doing them for a number of homo sapiens that, money has, that, that no monetary technology has done before. And that is the, the very, very big deal. I think it's fascinating. And a perfect example of that is El Salvador. And I don't have the exact stats off my head, but I recall that only a fraction of El Salvador is banked. A large portion of them live on the streets or don't have access to traditional financial institute, their institutions. And what's interesting is since the adoption of Bitcoin, they have already outpaced the traditional banking industry in terms of the amount of users, which is fascinating. You're, you're thinking about a technology that has been around traditional banking for hundreds of years and it's taken all of this time to bank a fraction of their population and bitcoin within a year has outpaced that that is mind-blowing it's similar to the printing press and the internet itself these are parallels that can be drawn where just a, a huge number of homo sapiens suddenly have access to something because of one innovation bitcoin does that same thing it's the printing press meeting the internet and the gold standard and it's likely much more significant in hindsight than we can even really understand at the moment. Yeah, it's a three-way between all three of those, Josh. Just a giant, wonderful orgy of the digital age. Just a menage a trois. It's yeah. Menage a trois.
Boys, thank you. This was a productive and really fun run with you guys today. Always good, boys. Always good. I think we di- dive down some uh, some rabbit holes, and I think it's just you know we said it before. The blue collar people, they're our people, man, and they need to know about this shit. Like uh, the world is evolving. There's a whole heap of fuckery going on. Uh, you need to really understand how it is to become more sovereign in yourself. Uh, and I think this is one of those technologies, once in a lifetime technologies that is going to enable humanity to do whatever the fuck they want. And it's a really powerful thing. I'm pumped to no, be part of it. I feel yeah. exactly the same way. What you guys are doing is absolutely phenomenal. Like even the other day, Daz and I were on a call uh, with two individuals uh, and it was a looking glass call and we were basically discussing financing. And, and what's fascinating is Daz and I are both just like, you know what? We come from like Daz an electrician. I'm a mountain bike instructor. Dahlia, our other partner. She is like a teacher and an engineer. When it comes to the financial world, it is not necessarily our expertise, but since diving down money, we've really started to understand this. And, and I think what's fascinating about Bitcoin is the inclusivity isn't just being able to, isn't just about being able to use money. It's also creating a system whereby people start to understand how our fundamental system operates. And I think that's what's fascinating about Bitcoin. More than ever, you speak to these individuals and people can start to describe what they believe money is. They can start to describe what the properties of money are. That has never happened before. People have just been handed down this money and said, this is how you're going to use it. And uh, I think it's fascinating because it's educating the world. People are starting to take notice and they, they want to care. And in terms of empowerment, if you're listening and you're doubting, keep asking questions. Keep digging into that. Don't trust verify. That's the mantra. I think what the four of us are saying, though, within this episode is that a, a digitally native asset that can be self-custodied with profound scarcity could very likely be a one-time discovery in our species that's headed in a, in a fairly defined direction, that being upward. And to me, it may not be advisable for you to go in all in Bitcoin, but as you said earlier in the episode, dads, a zero position probably doesn't make sense either. This thing has enough yeah. remarkable attributes. It's useful to an extent or has the potential to be useful to an extent that I would say get off zero would be my uh, my uh, self-control suggestion here for the listener. I mean, this is literally just punk rock versus state-sponsored opera, man. The finance industry in general is just a very controlled, very lame place to be bitcoin is where it's at man it's fun it's crazy and it, it means a lot again talking about like the whole allocation side of things and this is not financial advice but i finally over the last few months have finally orange pilled my mom after like years of rambling at her and the way i kind of worded it is it's just like you know what if you look at gold gold is valued between like 12 to 20 trillion dollars so let's just for easy math say it is 12 tri- uh, 20 trillion dollars now bitcoin is I think it's around like $450 billion market cap. Let's just round it to 500 for easy math. That means that Bitcoin is 40 times smaller than gold. That is mind blowing, 40 times smaller. So if you have a pension and you invested 1% of your pension, that means that if Bitcoin went up to the same size as gold, which I think considering its utility far outpaces gold, I think that is reasonable over the next however many years, then all of a sudden that 1% allocation has floated 80% of your pension portfolio. Even if so like if, if, if we go through a massive recession and your portfolio loses 50%, but people recognize Bitcoin as this incredible store of value and Bitcoin goes up 80%, awesome, you've just crushed it. And so I, I see it as whether you are 
deep down the rabbit hole and you want to invest a large portion of your portfolio or whether or not you're just trying to invest a tiny bit just to kind of get to get to know it i think that a one percent position will be able to float your portfolio if it goes in the direction that many of us see it going in well said well said incredibly asymmetrical huge potential upside the downside is zero Uh, obviously very unlikely but that's the simplest way to think through it allocate accordingly Gentlemen, pleasure. We'll see you next month. We've got a good number more of these coming, folks, and uh, hope you join us. Thanks a lot, guys. Look forward to a voice. Thanks so much for listening to the episode, folks. If you're appreciating our content and smelling what we're stepping in here at BCB Pod, here's a couple notes to pay attention to as we close out. First, you can genuinely help us extend our reach by leaving us a review on Apple or your podcast app of choice, as well as subscribing to our Blue Collar Bitcoin YouTube channel, where we post videos of these discussions as well as other shorts. Second, we are live on Podcast 2.0 apps. Our go-to app for listening to pods is Fountain App. Literally get paid sats for just listening to podcasts. There is no catch. You can also stream sats to content creators on the Lightning Network on Fountain, as well as create and share clips with the Fountain community. Go find us on the Fountain app, link down in the show notes. Third, we are active on social media, most predominantly Twitter, at blue underscore collar BTC. We're also on Noster, Instagram, and TikTok. All of these links are on our website, bluecollarbitcoin.io. If you want to get in touch with us, our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, continue a relentless and open-minded pursuit of knowledge. Take care.